What is up, guys? Welcome to episode 60 of the Triage Method podcast. If you are watching this on YouTube, that means that our first trial of recording the video was successful. Um, so that means that we can't troll each other visually anymore while the other person is talking. So that's definitely going to be like a, a barrier to a successful podcast. But we'll see how it goes. Uh, Paddy, how are you this week? You're finished your exams? Yeah, I am positively, absolutely fantastic. Exams are over. College is over. Summertime. Going away in three weeks. And it's just going to be glorious. So I'm ready for a summer of just hard work and fun. Where are you going for the summer? We already discussed this on the podcast, Gary. People don't need to fucking know and hear the same stuff over and over and over again. They know. For everyone that doesn't know, you'll just have to, you know, live in in the darkness. But for this or week... just go back and listen to all the other podcasts. Easy. For this week, we're going to discuss feelings. Um not feelings in the emotional sense. We're going to talk about feelings as they relate to exercise and particularly the misapplication of feelings in exercise prescription. And this is actually something that I wrote about last year. I think it was actually, might have, it might have even been this week last year because I remember I was in Nusa Lambangan, um, although it might have been later in the summer. But anyway, irrelevant. Um, it was something we wrote about last year. It's on our website. Some of you might have might have come across that. And basically, like the reason this is an important topic is because very often um, when people are going to the gym and, and they're running through their exercise program and they're doing specific exercises or learning something off someone else, their main method of evaluation in the moment tends to be how something feels since you're not able to actually assess the outcomes like prospectively, like you can't know what outcomes you're going to get from doing a certain exercise. So you're going to use some sort of feeling, which is then probably going to be like a surrogate marker that, that you trust is, is going to lead to the desired outcome. So that's, that's kind of why this is an important topic. Um, and there's, there's multiple different avenues that we're going to go down with this. You know, some of them are going to be related to things like mobility exercises. Some of them are going to be related to, for example, strength training exercises that feel good, that they mightn't always be useful exercises and even related to how hard an exercise set feels, why you shouldn't always just rely on that. So, so that's kind of our starting point for this discussion. That's cool. And when you say it's a discussion, what you really mean is you're going to talk and then I'm going to strategically throw some input in, and that's it. I think that's fair enough. <laughs> so so I'll, I'll, I'll just... Yeah, I'll start with, I want to focus on the mobility stuff to start off with because I think that's that's quite important because it's a, a very prevalent concept that I see like basically every day on social media. Um, and we, last year, both Paddy and I, we went to, to do the functional range conditioning course. You'll have heard our review of that of that on the podcast before. But we went and did that course essentially to try and get a better idea of, I guess, what people were being taught when they were being taught you know these different methodologies around quote-unquote mobility training so that's something we've discussed in the podcast before but that leads into this to this discussion so some of the things that that will come up on that course and in the methods that people who are certified in that you know what, what they would essentially be promoting like and we're certified in that as well but what they often, often promote is the feeling of getting into end ranges of motion and the feeling that is associated with that tends to be like really strong and intense. I'll give you a couple of, of specific examples to try and make this a little bit clearer. 
for example, if you are like kneeling down in like a hip flexor stretch position, okay, and what you do is you bring your, your heel up to meet your bum, that's going to basically put you in a position where your hamstring is really, really short and it's cramping. You know, that's, that's especially how you, if you're contracting contracting the glute as well. That's exactly, one. exactly, and it's basically a case where you're taking that muscle, the hamstring muscle, because it crosses the knee joint and the hip joint. You're taking it and and shortening it at the hip because your hip is extended, meaning you're squeezing your glute, as Paddy said, and you're also squeezing your hamstring because you're flexing your knee up as much as you can. So you're bending your knee, bringing your heel towards your bum. The result of that tends to be that the hamstring is, is in its fully shortened position and there's a really intense feeling that's close to cramping and that can potentially be cramping at times because you're encountering what's known as active insufficiency. And active insufficiency is basically just a way of describing the phenomenon when a muscle has nowhere else to go. So if you think of like a, a muscle as being, you know, these 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 fibers that are kind of linked together, this will make sense if you're watching the video, fibers that are linked together, when they totally link together in the fully shortened position, they have nowhere else to go. So they can't shorten anymore. And then that's when you start to get that sort of intense cramping sensation. It's a really intense feeling and it's probably going to feel different to any other hamstring exercise that you've done before. And what can come along with that is the sense that, oh, this is really productive. This is going to be like strengthening me so much. I, I'm so weak in this position. Whereas, in fact, what you're doing is just encountering a position where you're really, really weak physiologically, as in everyone is going to be weak in that position because that's the basic structure of like muscles on that kind of microscopic level. Like that, that's, that's what's going to happen. And you can only improve that to a very small degree, as in like you might, you might be able to tolerate that position a little bit more, but you are not going to be building significant amounts of strength there, and you're certainly not going to be building significant amounts of muscle there. So why that is important is because if you rely solely on that feeling to guide how useful an exercise is, then you're going to be missing out on you know gains that are potentially being left on the table there. So that's just one example of where you're taking the hamstring and fully, fully shortening it. Other examples might be things like if you're sitting on the floor and you, you straighten out your knees, so you have your knees straight or legs straight while you're sitting up on the floor and you lift up one leg, that's going to give you a cramping sensation and the upper and the upper thigh. So your rectus femoris and your, your hip flexor muscles there, they're going to feel like they're kind of cramping up. And again, that's totally normal because that rectus femoris, one of your quad muscles, that crosses the hip and the knee. So it's encountering that active insufficiency again. So it's going to feel like it's really short, like it's cramping up. And again, that's that might have a specific purpose in some cases, but it's not necessarily an indicator that that is a really useful exercise for you at this point in time. So I often think of these sorts of things as being almost like parlor tricks. And um, you see them done very often at seminars because what you can essentially do is I can pick out a really strong guy from the crowd who might be a power lifter, you know, really strong person. And I put them in one of these positions and I'm like, oh, you see, you're actually not strong. Your hamstring is actually weak. Whereas in fact, what you're doing is you're just putting a person in, in, in a position where you expect them to have this, this sensation and then it makes them feel like there's all these sorts of deficits that aren't really deficits that need to be addressed. So that, that's kind of why I, I think it's something that's worth acknowledging. Can you think of any other examples related to, to that, Paddy, that might be worth considering or relatable that people might have seen on the social medias? Uh, maybe not something that some people have seen in social media, but something you may have experienced to illustrate this point like you can get this active insufficiency with your eyes right like you can literally look a certain way and keep trying to look that way 
and eventually you'll get your eye to feel like it's crampy or even cramp, right? And you wouldn't then think that, oh, this is going to give me all kinds of fucking hypertrophic gains in my eyeballs. Like, you're not going to think that. So just because you are feeling that active insufficiency doesn't mean that that is necessarily a great exercise. Now, obviously, using the eye, like you're not trying to hypertrophy, well, most of you are not trying to hypertrophy the muscles in your eyes uh, or around your eyes. Um, But it, it shows you something that you may have experienced, or rather it explains something that you may have experienced, right? So if you're, if you're kind of going like, oh, I've never you know, done this hamstring thing they're saying or this quad thing they're saying, I don't really know what they're going on about. Most people have tried moving their eyes around when they were a child or whatever and got to that end range and they're like, oh shit, oh fuck, what, what's going on? You know, and, and kind of almost scared themselves, you know? But I think for people listening or viewing, um, the way you actually started thinking about this and applying this is like, or what we're going to discuss now, presumably, uh, is okay. The accept the, the point and go, okay, that's not indicative of a great exercise. They kind of understood that anyway. They've been listening to our podcast. They've been looking at the, the stuff we put out and they're going, okay, cool. I actually understand that that's just, you know, short range insufficiency. And it just feels like that crampy sensation, you know, like, yeah, I understand that. I knew that wasn't really anything special, right? But how does that actually apply to the way they then treat exercises or select exercises or rather think about exercise as a whole? Because I know I've definitely fallen into this trap before where you don't really have a way to theorize or look at exercise you don't have the knowledge you don't have the experience whatever and you kind of are left on okay well if i can feel it working in the gym that means it's working you know which is obviously to some extent correct right but then the way you then start measuring the effectiveness of exercises is how well you feel them you know, how, or how, how good of a connection you get with that muscle or did I get a good connection with that muscle? And inevitably, the, the exercises that you feel more of a connection are the exercises that you start getting this kind of cramping sensation. You know, you literally bring your arm in and it's across the body and you're going, oh yeah, I really feel that in the, the inner upper chest there. You know, and it's like, is that, it, does, does that mean that's an effective exercise for that area? You know, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I, like I understand why, cause I've done it myself. Like how do we then, while we're exercising, decide whether an exercise is good or not? Should we be biasing going, okay, well I'm feeling this, this contraction very intensely. So obviously that's a good exercise. Is that a good way to think about exercise selection or exercise on the whole? Yeah. So I suppose first things first, we, I guess we're, we're making the assumption here that we're we're choosing exercises with the intent of biasing a specific muscle or group of muscles, okay? So that's kind of our starting framework. Um, we're not talking about people with the goal of, let's say, like powerlifting, trying to maximize your one rep max. Like that's a, a different kind of question. We're kind of speaking to people here who are going to be selecting exercises for their biceps or shoulders or chest or whatever based on feeling, okay? And I, I think a nice way of, of, of breaking down a lot of kind of complicated topics and making it into a really simple message is to like choose an exercise that yeah you you are feeling some sort of connection on the target muscle but also that it's somewhat even throughout the range of motion 
okay i think that's a nice way of, of thinking about it because if you take any of those exercises for example the ones that really feel intense in one portion then it's 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 kind of easy through the rest of the range of motion like to give you an example if anyone has done like a a spider curl for example I'm not sure if, you, if most people know what that is. You're basically lying down on a bench with your arms hanging down and you do a bicep curl. So your hands are coming up towards your forehead. At the top of that movement, it's going to feel ridiculously intense, like a really intense contraction because, again, the biceps are crossing the elbow and the shoulder. So they're sharpening that bit more. And also the way that the resistance is set up in that exercise is going to make it more difficult at the top. However, at the bottom, and until you get about halfway up, it's just not challenging at all. Like, like there's, there's very little work being done. Um, and that's, that's kind of a nice, a nice example of where this comes into play. Another, another way that comes, this comes into play is like in a, a chest fly, like how do you were doing that chest fly motion there a minute ago. And if you were to do that type of movement and the cable was like just pulling your arm out, you'd feel it really intense there, but you wouldn't feel it back at the end point of the range of motion, like when your arm is kind of more in line with your body because the cable is just pulling straight through your arm. So there are some examples of where this comes into play that, that you can start to think about on a, on a, a broader sense, I guess. If you were to think of that quad exercise we talked about where you're just lifting your leg up like a straight leg raise, like think about where that is difficult. It's only difficult in one very specific point in the leg and bring it from like, a normal neutral resting position up halfway but it's going to be really hard at the top so if when you're starting to think about choosing appropriate exercises you're thinking about all right is it is it difficult on on the target muscle that i'm trying to train assuming that's our goal and is it difficult through most of the range of motion that i'm actually using because that to me is an efficient way of training because you're you're you have appropriate resistance at all points in the range So th that that's the way that I that I would that I would start to think about it. Um, do you think that is, that makes sense? Is there any problems in that argument? What do you think? No, it sounds it sounds good. Um, with with that then as well, it doesn't really answer the question. Well, it does, but it doesn't really answer the question. So if they're they're, they're trying to choose an exercise, they're going to the gym and they're like, okay, they're saying I shouldn't choose it based on my momentary feelings in the gym but at the same time i should be aware of them and kind of go okay am i getting an even feel throughout this range whatever the exercise is whatever the target muscle is whatever it is you're trying to get this even feeling throughout the range of some tension on the muscle you're not just biasing like that fully contracted position whether it's a curl whether it's a lateral raise whatever it is you're not you're not biasing just one pointing on, oh, I feel it loads there. So that means that this exercise is really good. They're not doing that. They're kind of going, okay, I might not feel it as intensely, but I know that I'm getting a full contraction or a full range of motion, contraction, whatever you want to call it, uh, throughout that exercise, right? So they're doing that. But even then, it can be hard to conceptualize and think about what exercises to choose now obviously more education needs to happen you need to understand what you're trying to achieve you need to understand program design etc etc all the stuff we have talked about before but just just intuitively seeing as we're talking about this feeling thing is it okay then to use the feelings the day after as a method of 
tracking the intensity or the effectiveness or whatever you want to say about of the, the workout. So for example, I trained chest, I was listening to you guys, I did, you know, these full ranges of motion and I got a good contraction throughout. Maybe I did some exercises that maybe biased a little bit of shortening or maybe a bit of lengthening or whatever. They just, they got a good complete quote unquote um, chest workout, right? And the next day they're sore in certain areas. Say they're sore on the, the outside of their pec or maybe they're sore on the inside of their pec. Does that then allow them? We'll actually make it even simpler. Say they literally just did bench press and flies, right? Dumbbell flies, right? And they'd never done dumbbell flies before. Or no, they, they're, they're, they've done dumbbell flies before. They're just doing a little bit more volume on them on this day so that they can see where it actually gets sore. So the next day they go, okay, dumbbell flies may be sore in this area the outside of the pec say is that a good way then to use your feelings in deciding what exercises to do how effective exercises are so you're not you're not focusing on the the momentary feeling of you know maybe this active insufficiency or maybe getting under this huge stretch you're not using those while in the gym yes you're feeling the muscle but you're not going oh it's oh, it's really intense because of it are you allowed to use your feelings the next day does that make sense yeah, so yes and no, and, and that's kind of the point of this podcast is to show you when your feelings are not reliable, <laughs> which is a lot of the time. Um, so that, that, that requires a little bit more nuance again, because essentially like what you're talking about there is the, the sensation of or experience of delayed onset muscle soreness. So if you're experiencing delayed onset muscle soreness, generally that tends to be associated more so with exercises that are going to be taking you into the lengthened range um, with sufficient resistance. Okay, so generally that's going to be the case. So like in that case, you could have a very effective exercise that doesn't make you sore and you could have a less effective exercise that does make you sore, depending on the amount, the novelty. So whether or not that was a new exercise and also depending on the amount of volume that was allocated to that specific exercise. So like, for example, if you do a regular if you do a, a cable fly, let's say, where it's really difficult in that kind of shortened position where your arms are together, you're in that kind of hugging position, if it's really difficult there versus something like a dumbbell fly where it's really difficult at the bottom, we would expect more soreness from the dumbbell fly. And the problem with that is like, yeah, that, that's something that we would expect, but it's not necessarily reliable from the, from the perspective of actually choosing that as your exercise going forward. So I think when you're thinking about like what you feel the next day after exercise, I think there should be a case of you experience some soreness at some points in time if you are choosing choosing appropriate exercises. Like if your quads have never been sore from any of your quad workouts, then I would question, like, one, are you choosing appropriate exercises? Like realistically, if you're doing like a squat variation and a leg press variation, your quads should be working pretty hard or higher squat or leg press even and um, they should be working pretty hard so then it might be a case of you actually questioning the amount of volume that you're doing so are you doing actually sufficient sets or are you working close enough to failure for you to get the stimulus that's required for you at that point in time um, so sometimes you do want to experience some soreness with the caveat that that's not necessarily a good a marker that you want to look for all the time but if you've never been sore in a muscle a muscle group then i would be questioning the way in which you perform that exercise, the exercises you're choosing, or the actual dosing of the exercise, as I just said. But that kind of brings us back to a previous point that, that we were talking about. We were talking about, what were we saying? The feelings exercise. Oh, yeah. 
this this whole like judging how an exercise actually feels it matters far more or, or, or almost only matters for exercises that you're where you're trying to isolate a specific muscle group okay it matters way more when you're trying to isolate something that could potentially be taken over by something else for example if you're trying to work let's say your rear delts like you had a really specific goal those rear delt fibers are really meaningful to you then you probably do want to find some exercise that that you feel those working because it could be the case that they've underdeveloped throughout your training so as a result when you do normal rowing variations or you do wide grip rowing variations your traps and your your lats tend to kind of do most of the work so in that case that's where you might want to say do you know what i actually want to find a variation where i feel that a little bit more similarly it could be something like your upper chest fibers like maybe you're a bodybuilder and you really like need to specifically hit that area then that's a case where you're like all right i want to find an exercise where I feel it more in the upper chest because at the moment I'm feeling like my, del my delts are doing all the work. So that's kind of where this becomes important. It's more important on that isolated, like real specific basis than it is for 90% of gym goers. Like realistically, if you're doing a squat and it, it looks technically decent, you're doing a deadlift that looks technically decent. Same with some sort of like pressing variation, pulling variations. Like if they look okay, then the muscles that are responsible for, like for for for, move, for moving the weight in those exercises are working. Like if they weren't, you wouldn't be able to do the exercise. And like there's obviously some more nuance there. Like some people are going to have have more, you know, glutes working. Some people have more quads working in different exercises, and that's totally normal. But realistically, this is more important for those kind of isolated examples than anything else. I wouldn't be stressing too much if I was the average gym goer in terms of like, oh, I don't feel my quads working in the squat, like. If you are, if you're progressing over time, you're doing sufficient volume. Your quads are probably going to grow most of the time, unless you're like doing a total like good morning with your squat. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 more so where I would use feelings. I would use yeah. the feelings in make, making sure, as best you can, that you're not using other muscle groups. And again, like the squat is a good one there, where you're like, if you're doing a squat variation, and the only thing you can feel is your lower back right and that doesn't mean that your your quads aren't working that doesn't mean that your glutes aren't working or whatever that means that you should probably change your technique in some manner so that you're not just getting this complete overload on like your lower back structures right and again like that that's a hard thing to truly go down the rabbit hole with because some some structures aren't going to be able to handle as much volume as much load as whatever else so there's always going to be this weak point so you could be getting sufficient volume tension, whatever else, on your quads, your glutes, your hamstrings, everything else, but your your lower back is just taking a bit more of a beating from the exercise, you know, or maybe your glutes are just taking a little bit more. The, the tension is biased a little bit more towards them. That doesn't, like Gary was saying, that doesn't mean that those other muscles aren't uh, being used, they aren't doing their job. So that's a fine line, but it is the, the other area. So you can obviously use your your feelings to go, okay, I need to bias so that it's only on this muscle. Again, like you said, with the rear delts. But to do that, you have to bias it away from being on other muscles, you know, if that makes sense. So you can, you can use your feelings that way. So if you're doing that a rear delt variation and you're going, I'm only feeling this in my traps, you can use that feeling of, I'm feeling this only in my traps to find a variation 
where you're not feeling it only in your traps, if that makes sense, you know? Um, so you can, you can use your feelings those two ways. You know, you can use it to really isolate in and just, I just want to feel this very particular section of a muscle, all right? Or you can use it and go, I shouldn't be using my traps in this exercise. So can I change my technique so that my traps don't feel like they're taking over the entire exercise, you know? So even that they're essentially just two sides of the same coin, um, but you can kind of think of them in, in both of those manners. Make sense, Gary? Yeah, like, and I mean, like, I'm, I'm kind of hesitant as well to, to push people, like, down that path of, like, really trying to, like, uh, you know, make sure that you feel those rear delts because I know I've gone far too far with that stuff in the past in terms of, like, like for example, if you're doing a lateral raise and you feel your traps work, like, it's almost like a, a fitness industry norm to just be like, oh, oh God, like, why are your traps working? Like, this isn't a trap exercise. And it's like, it's fine. Like, if your traps are working, like, that's fine. I, I think people sometimes have this idea that there's there are certain bad muscles that we don't necessarily want to feel. The traps in a lateral raise is one, is one example. Traps in an upright row, traps in any sort of row, because upper traps are just seen like as a bad muscle um I blame physios for that <laughs> that's not a personal trainer's fault um the, the same thing when it comes to like hip flexors like if you're doing a lunge for example a lunge or a split squat variation then like one of the things that people freak out about is like oh i feel my hip flexors working and it's like oh yeah that's cool they're supposed to be working they're part of the exercise that's totally fine um however like again hip flexors like upper traps are considered to be bad muscles and people freak out if they feel the hip flex was working. So I suppose like that's why that's why it's important when you're thinking of these exercises, especially when they involve multiple joints, muscle, multiple muscles, as most exercises do, you don't want to get like too like freaked out about a specific muscle because like it is also the case that like when you're a beginner, you're gonna feel all sorts of things everywhere that you don't know how to interpret and that are unreliable if you were to try and interpret them. Um, and and what, like one of the, the ways I've changed over the years, personally, when I'm advising people about training, is to get them to focus on, on less as opposed to more. Okay, so if they're doing like a, an exercise and it, it looks fine, I'm not gonna be going in there questioning like, do you feel it here? Do you feel it here? Or you shouldn't feel it here? Because then that's giving the person lots of stuff to think about that can potentially like, just distract them from what's actually important. So I think that that's definitely worth worth considering in this picture as well. That's very fair, Gary. So to go back to the original point, mobility. So we understand we're not using, yeah. <laughs> we're not using our feelings during an exercise or whatever to fully dictate that exercise selection, effectiveness, blah, 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 everything we just covered. Um, yeah. How does this apply to mobility again? <laughs> the main way I was applying it to mobility was basically because it's kind of like mobility gurus like promoting because it's essentially it's essentially taking people who are involved in strength training and trying to find some way to show them that they're weak and then get them to practice that more and the reason that I think that that this is an important thing to draw on is because a lot of the time these exercises there's very little return on investment um, and, and that's kind of the problem is that like you can find you can take someone and give them a program that puts all of their joints in really awkward positions that are going to feel horrible you know they're going to feel really intense and get them to work in those positions but the question that you actually have to ask yourself is like what is the return on investment here 
because like we know that like I think it's less than 30% of people actually meet their basic exercise guidelines for health like that's just health like that's not performance or anything so if we know that that percentage of people may meet the basic guidelines for health we have to be really careful when trying to get them to do loads of other things to take time away from things like strength training that builds strength and muscle and prolongs their life and increases quality of life and function etc and their basic aerobic exercise that again is going to you know prolong their life, reduce incidence of cardiovascular disease, et cetera, et cetera. So they're the really important things. And to me, when you're justifying an intervention that is additive to that, like it better be damn good. And a lot of the time, putting joints in awkward positions just to hold them kind of for the sake of it, I question the return on investment. And this isn't just a case of like you and me, like looking from the outset and being like, oh, that's stupid because we don't do it. Like both of us are literally qualified in this stuff. Like we, we traveled all the way to Switzerland and paid like thousands and everything to get certified in this stuff. So like, it's not a case of, of just I'm also ignorance. Like a qualified yoga. And you can, you, I literally yeah, have you've been doing this stuff for like a decade. All, literally, like I've, do, I've done all this stuff. I've gone down all of these rabbit holes, you know, like, like I, I really enjoy some of those training modalities, you know, and I enjoy Yeah, that's cool. Like, I like exercising. I like moving. I'm like, if I'm sitting down, I'm like, yeah, I can do some fucking rotations with my hip or something. I'm like, it gives me something to do, like, you know? So that that's the perspective we're coming from. But again, like you said, I always question the return on investment because people make out this mobility stuff to be, I don't know, fucking a godsend or something. Like, it's like this, this if you're not doing this, like, you, you basically are going to get body cancer. Your entire body is just going to be cancer. You know, it's like you're, you're useless as a, a being. You, you can't move, you know? And it's like, okay, that to an extent is fair because what it means to be human is to be able to move. Like our, even, our, even if it's just on a cellular level, like that's what our cells need to do, you know? So that, that's cool. I can, I can kind of get down with this. But then if you're saying that, I'm going to expect that you spending these four or five, six 20 hours per week doing your hip mobilization stuff. I'm going to presume you squat like 400 kilos. Yep. Like that's, run, that's run marathons regularly. <laughs> exactly. That, that's my, that's my baseline presumption. Like if you've spent all this time getting this last millimeter of range of motion in your hip, I'm going to presume that was worth a thousand fold increase in your strength levels your ability, your capacity to move. But if it isn't, then, then why did you do it? Now that's, of course, I don't want to just be a complete like straw man in there, the argument because yeah, yeah, yeah. at the same time, it's like, that's not to say mobility work isn't vital in some cases. Like say, for example, like you're doing a load of jits these days that you're just not accustomed to because you're quite weak, um, both in the mind and the body. But anyway, uh, <laughs> And, you know, like in like, say in jits, like there's loads of positions where you're going to have to bring your knee towards your chest, say, like, say you're, you're, you're shrimping out, you're bridging out of a position and you're trying to bring your, your knee to your chest. Like if you don't have the mobility to bring that knee in towards the chest or get into a good kind of, we'll say that kind of shrimped out position, you're not going to be able to be successful at your chosen sport, you know? And that's the way you should think of these things. Like, is there a mobility limitation that is holding you back? If there is, then yeah. By all means, you should be working on it. If you are just trying to move a little bit better, 
trying to get stronger, get fitter, there's probably one or two things that you're like, yeah, I probably should spend a little bit more time working on that. But that doesn't mean that you have to do these specific mobility drills. That could just mean that, okay, when I do my squat, I'm actually going to pause it in that bottom position for a, a couple of seconds just to really open up, like feel it around, actually get a little bit stronger in that position. It doesn't have to take this 20, 30 minute mobility mobilization drills before your workout or anything like that. Like, again, I've gone down this rabbit hole. I'm like, yeah, like, that's what you need to do. You need to do 20 minutes of mobilizing, some foam rolling, whatever else before your workouts. But it, it, what's the return on investment? Like, I, I also always look at these people and then I'm like, okay, cool. So if you're spending this 20, 30, 40, 50, some people spend an hour before their workout, you know, uh, mobilizing. I'm going to presume that you have unreal mobility after six months a year right i'm going to presume you're going to be able to do the splits i'm going to presume you're going to be able to do all of these wild movements because if you were to train for a year and you weren't able to squat the bar or you weren't able to squat like a plate as a, as a guy like uh, a plate per side i'd be questioning your your training modality so if you're just going oh yeah just do these mobilization exercises and after a year, you have literally nothing to show for it. And again, I'm, I'm being a bit of a straw man. I'm straw manning the argument somewhat yeah. by saying oh, you should have uh, the splits, but you should have some, you know, something to show for all of that time you've invested, you know, rather than just, oh, oh well, it felt good. It felt like I was stretching my uh, hip flexor. What? Yeah, and like as we've discussed so many times, anytime this mobility like discussion has come up, like the definition of mobility is the ability to move. And what is resistance training? It's training your ability to move, except with actual resistance. Like, you know, like you were talking about there, the the shrimp position in BJJ. Like if you if you want to get into that position, it's like, what does that look like? It's like, oh, it almost looks like the, the bottom of a deadlift almost, or even the bottom of a squat. Like if you're if you're squatting deep enough. So it's like maybe I should practice that stuff so that I, I can actually produce force there as well. I'm not, I'm not just, you know, trying to get there with, with no resistance because I'm going to have this like hundred kilo guy on top of me who wants to kill me as well. So I'm like, I may as well practice with weights. So, so that's where, that's where like, you know, this mobility stuff comes back into the real world. It's like the, it's, it's about the ability to move. And if we want to train our ability to move, then we have to do so in a way that is genuinely challenging and that actually replicates kind of the real world, I guess. So, so that's running that's mountain running that's that's going and lifting weights that's going to jiu-jitsu or whatever you prefer to do it's like you're training your ability to move there but you're actually deciding all right what's the end point for me like what do i want to be able to do and then i go and i practice that stuff because you know even if you give that example like jiu-jitsu it's like if you were if you wanted to get better at jiu-jitsu you're not going to do like four days of mobility work and one day of jiu-jitsu it's like no it's going to be the opposite way around like you, you actually practice what you need to be able to do because there's a lot more to it and that's the same with any any sport so so i think we've we've covered the the mobility stuff hopefully that gives you guys some some things to to think about because i definitely see like a lot of people putting out a lot of information about this stuff especially because i kind of you know have my hand in that sort of physio world as well and definitely see like that being like the focal point for a lot of physios is like oh you just need to work on your mobility you know you just need to work on your mobility and until we have like clear definitions about what that actually means what adaptations you're looking for and what the return on investment is 
I think it's a it's a relatively worthless discussion because we know that low muscle strength and low muscle mass are negative predictors for like mortality and quality of life and stuff. So it's like, all right, why are you not trying to actually get stronger and, and build muscle and increase your you know cardiorespiratory capacity? That's the important stuff. And like whether you have forty degrees or forty three degrees of hip external rotation, I'm like meh not particularly important for me if you don't have muscle around that joint to support it in in 60 years so so there you go um and, and that kind of brings us on to the final part of this discussion which i think also warrants its own its own podcast at some point we have touched on it in the past but it's it's the idea that you 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 try and qualify you know how difficult your workout was by the feeling of one single set um, and we've talked about this before, but it, it, it basically, you can reduce it down to the idea of training to total failure and quote unquote beyond failure or leaving some reps in the tank because like there, there is like, it's obviously very popular in, in, especially now that people have the opportunity to share training videos online to everyone all the time. You want to make it look like you are crushing it. You know, you want to be going beast mode and, you know, people always put up videos of themselves like, going to failure and like nearly getting sick after a single set and stuff like that. And I suppose the, the, the people we, we are trying to speak to are the people that are observing that and thinking, Oh God, maybe I need to train harder. You know, I should, I really be leaving two reps in the tank or whatever? Like, is this a good idea? And I suppose what I want to get people to realize is that how, how some, how, how difficult a set feels is not a reliable indicator of future outcomes. And I think a really good way of understanding that is looking at how other athletes actually train. Because I think sometimes we, we keep our, our eyes so focused on people who lift weights that we forget to, to look elsewhere. And if you ask any marathon runner how they train most of the time, they'll be doing lots of tempo work, you know, so they'll be doing things like, you know, reducing the pace at which they run their kilometers, but much like below the threshold that they'd run in an actual marathon because they don't want to be doing this constant like maximally fatiguing work because that's just generally not a good idea in terms of like recovering you know reducing risk of injury and stuff like that you don't want to be going 100% all of the time what they might do then is include some some like intervals where they actually work at their their race pace and they build that up over time and it's no different when it comes to like sports teams when if you play GA like if you have a good coach they're not going to have you like out working like 100% effort all the time. Like it's just generally not a, a good way of going about things. And that comes back to weight training as well. If you're doing yeah. all of your... Before you go, go on ahead. To, like, going with the running stuff as well, like as everyone always likes to do it, even though it's a, a false dichotomy, uh, people always like to compare like resistance training to sprinting. They're like, oh, they're both anaerobic. I'm like, okay, so if you're going to say suggest that, then surely you would then suggest training the way a sprinter would train which would be not maximally sprinters not going, I'm going to work up to my absolute, like Usain Bolt's not going in there and trying to beat nine seconds every single hundred meter he does. Like he's like, okay, I'm going to take it at a certain pace. I'm going to build up the intensity of that over weeks, months, years more likely. Uh, like he's not going balls to the wall, 10 out of 10, every single hundred meter. And then people will be like, oh, yeah, well, it's not resistance training. It isn't like sprinting then. It's like, okay, well, like, is it like it or is it not like it? You know, you have to be 
somewhat consistent in in your if you're saying it uses the same energy systems, then why would you train it differently? Anyway, that's just my little uh, aside. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like it applies to everything. Like literally, literally every sport except people that just go to the gym themselves. People are concerned about pulling back a little bit, like not going 100% all the time. That's why you'll see runners like tracking their heart rate when they run because they're like, oh, I want to make sure, you know, I'm not going above, let's say, 70, 80% of my max heart rate because I know then that I'll just get really fatigued, burn out really soon, and then I won't be able to do my workout that I need to do tomorrow or the day after. Um, so every sport. However, when it comes to resistance training, weight training, powerlifting, bodybuilding, whatever, there's that, awesome, there's that sort of, I guess, card that people wear where like, oh no, I go all the way to failure all the time. And again, like I've been there. I have been that person. I've been that person who's like, you grunt your way all, all the way to the end of the set and you pause for a few seconds and you're dying and you're like, no, nah, bro, you know, I got, I've got like 10 more and you just keep going, you know? So I've been there and, and that, that definitely has its place at times. But essentially what you're doing there is you're taking a single set and you're pouring all of your efforts into that instead of, instead of thinking, all right, what about my performance on subsequent sets? So if I'm doing four sets, I want to be able to perform well throughout all of those. And then I want to be able to do the exercise after that. And I want to be able to do my workout tomorrow and my workout next week. So you start to take that longer term perspective and, and don't just focus on how a single set was, because you do see this all the time where people are in the gym and they work up to one single set where it's really difficult. They empty the tank and then they're like, oh, you know, I actually mightn't do my back half set because that went, that set went really well because they start to like invest all of their efforts into that and think that that's all that matters because I think people have a, a skewed idea of what progressive overload should look like. They think that they need to hit PRs every session and once you do that, you're making progress, whereas progressive overload is just part of the picture. You also need to be doing you know, sufficient volume and you need to be able to sustain that over time then. So it, it's a longer term thing. And you also see this when people do like leg workouts, for example, let's say people will go beast mode on their squats, then they're kind of RDLs or whatever they might be doing next. It's like, oh yeah, I'm kind of putting effort in. I kind of half-ass my lunges and then I obviously skip calves. Like, why would I do calves, you know? <laughs> and that's because people are totally emptying themselves into single sets or even single exercises and not conserving their energy throughout the workout. So, so I wouldn't just rely on how difficult a single set was. You can't, like, you can't just keep working harder as a means of trying to progress. Like that's, that's not sustainable or useful. Like, like what do you do? You just reach a point where you're, you've hit failure and, and you just keep going to failure every week. Like you can't just keep doing that because it's just not a useful practice and you're not allowing yourself to perform across multiple sets, which is probably a better thing to focus on. Yeah. I just, Two, two things throughout that conversation as well. Like we should also compare it, compare all this stuff to the sport of actually lifting weights, which there's, there's two lifting weight sports. There's like Olympic weightlifting and there's powerlifting and neither of them go to failure. <laughs> you know, like they're literally more concerned with, I'm going to practice my technique. I'm going to lift submaximally. I'm going to make every rep as beautiful as possible. And even the like, West side barbell, because they'd be the ones that are more traditionally like, let's go balls to the wall. But the way it looks, like obviously I've never been to West Side Barbell, so I don't fucking know. Uh, I'm not Louis Simmons, quite clearly. Um are you not? Oh Jesus. Um but by the looks of it, they're not going to absolute complete 
failure on their their max effort sets. Like, yes, they're going to pretty fucking damn hard, but they're not in the gym every single week trying to, well, they are trying to hit PRs, but they're not doing the same exercise and trying to add 1.25 kilos to the max out, like one rep max they did last week. Like that's not what they're doing. That's why they rotate exercises. That's what, that's why they do that kind of stuff. So they're like, yes, we can work hard, but we're working hard in multiple rep ranges. We're working hard on multiple exercises. We're working hard across multiple different variables, you know? Uh, and that kind of gets lost in the conversation. And again, with the Olympic lifters, like they're just, they're just not. The only ones that would be more so towards that kind of max effort effort uh like all out would be the previous bulgarian uh lifters but again like they were all on drugs so there's that they were also like selected to be able to survive that training and most of them wouldn't be lifting maximally every single day like you can literally look at the people who were engaged in that training and they used to always say there's a term for it i can't remember and they used to always talk about how they used to go about 20% under what they knew they were able for on a consistent basis and like lie about it and say, Oh, I misloaded the weights or, you know, just be like, Oh, uh, I'm feeling a little bit sick today or whatever. Like they would always try to cheat the system because even then being the genetically being them on drugs still realize that this is pretty fucking hard to max effort, like truly all the time, you know? And again, that's not to say it can't be done. It's just that, it's probably not appropriate. Then the other ones that do it are the Chinese, but again, they are genetically selected. They're probably fucking genetically engineered, realistically. <laughs> um, but uh, they're, they're genetically selected. Like the way they have their system run up, or the way they have their system run is like they literally have schools and they'll pick you from like a, a child. Yeah. And like you have the correct genetics for whatever sport it is that we're trying to do, in this case, Olympic lifting, and be like, you are perfectly suited for this. And then they'll build up the volume. Like they literally do like five years of just using like a, a broom, you know, to do the, the exercise. So it's like, they've already got all, like, before you even knew what weights were, they were squatting a hundred kilos because they had literally spent fucking the last 10 years before that practicing the technique, getting all this foundational stuff done, you know? So you can't really compare yourself to them either. And then everyone else that would be in the same position as, you know, the, the people going to the gym aren't maxing out, aren't going balls to the wall, 10 out of 10, right? So that's one part of my response there you should have mentioned as well. But then also to that, well, all these people that are going fucking balls to the wall with their leg training, maybe it's just me, but I would think it is way more impressive if you just stepped off this fucking 50 rep fucking, not even a widow maker, this fucking death maker uh, set, and you're just like, whew, it's grand. And like, you're dying. Literally, like dying <laughs> on the inside. Like, you didn't even express a single iota of pain in your face. I think that'd be more impressive, surely. 100%. And, and like that, that actually touches on a really important point that I almost forgot to bring up, but it was in relation to fatigue. Like, you know, fatigue is is a is like like pain and like all these things we talk about they're kind of like these multi it's a multifactorial experience so it's 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 all these different inputs are coming together to determine how fatigued you feel after a set so if you're like grunting shouting everyone's shouting at you you've got your loudest rock music on and you're going all the way to the end on that multi-joint exercise if you're doing that 
like that is super fatiguing and disproportionately fatiguing versus you adopting that attitude like you just said is like i'm just going to be calm i'm going to push myself to the point where i'm i'm done i'm going to have i'm listening i'm listening to some some bach in my ears you know <laughs> that's all i'm listening to and then you finish your set and you're like oh oh that was that was nice. It was too easy, you know. You finish that, and like that's going to result in less fatigue because you're not. Pitch boss chaps. It was grand. <laughs> yeah, because because you're not hyping yourself up. Like you know, if if people are going to talk about like the stress response and the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system and all that, like like think about what that actually means for your training. Like you don't want to like be totally ramping yourself up and getting as stressed as you as you possibly could on every set because that's leading to disproportionate amounts of fatigue that you then have to like recover from before you can perform again. So if you're doing like set one and you're getting 12 reps and then you can only get six on set two, it's like, damn, like that's a lot of fatigue. And you could have potentially just did eight to 10 across four sets there and accumulate a lot more work in total. So, so they're the kind of things that are, are worth thinking about. Okay. So anything else about feelings, Gary? Um, I was going to put on my control your emotions hat just for the, for the episode, but I didn't uh, put it on, but anyway, there you go. Like, yeah, basically like that's, that's kind of the, the message is like, if you're training in the gym, resistance training, like it's, it's probably a good idea to, to, to try and control your emotions sometimes, you know, that you want to not allow yourself to get to that point where you've totally given a hundred percent, you leave a little bit in the tank. We've talked about that on previous podcasts in relation to reps and reserve and stuff like that. That's generally a good idea. Then when it comes to actual exercise selection, you're thinking about, you know, so you, you want your feelings to be some, you want to rely on them a little bit, especially if there's those types of specific isolation exercises that have a very specific purpose. But in a broader sense, for most resistance training exercises, like compound multi-joint movements, then you're thinking, all right, my feelings are probably less reliable here because the chances are these muscles are probably working once my technique is somewhat decent. And then finally, when it comes to the mobility stuff that we touched on, um, despite the fact that some of these exercises may feel really difficult, you have to ask yourself if the return on investment is actually worth it, because very often you might find that that's actually not the case, with the caveat that we're not saying that they're stupid and irrelevant, and we already kind of made that case that, that there is some application there for sure. Um, so yeah, is that, is that a sufficient summary? We are going to do some, some Q&A as well, so if you want to add anything, I'll load up the questions. I want to add nothing, Gary. Absolutely nothing. But I will. So that is a free article, isn't it? The misapplication of feelings. Is that a free article? Yes. Yes. Well, There's an article I, on our site on that. I will link it in the description. Savage. Yeah, because that, that actually goes into a little bit more of the, if I recall correctly, the, the physiology of what I, what's actually going on here. And I think in that article, I also talk about things like, you know, sweating and, and like how red you look during exercise, like stuff like that as well, because I think that's actually relevant as well to beginners who think that they need to be sweating and out of breath all the time when that's not necessarily the goal. So, so yeah, check that out as well. So basically what we're going to do in the podcast going forward, guys, is take maybe like three to five of your questions at the end so that we can kind of keep you engaged and make sure we're giving you information that's actually useful. So I've got some of them loaded up here. And the first one from Tom, do you think these should be anonymous? Or I can say a first name, surely, like who cares? <laughs> I think it should be anonymous. Anonymous, anonymous. Uh, just, just make right. up the name. I'll be anonymous, so, all right. But if you're listening, you I'll know just, which question. You're surely. Sure. <laughs> Tom, Tom asked, do you think you should have a base level of muscle mass before 
cutting. Um, I'll take this quickly and then you can add anything else. Um, I, I think yes and no. Um, yes, in a sense that if you are that kind of beginner, beginner, skinny guy or girl who's getting into this to look like your your idol from Instagram who's who's ripped and who's been doing this for like 10 years, then there's definitely a certain level that you need to get to in terms of muscle mass before you consider cutting to try and reach that goal, like for sure. But that sort of assumes that we're starting from that starting point of this person is in the fit fitness industry, they want to look like this person at the end point, and that's definitely not everyone. And I think the, the broader answer would be that no, like there's no base level of, of muscle mass that you need to have to cut because, for example, you could have a, a low level of muscle mass and lots of body fat, and it could be very helpful for you to try and lose that body fat like like straight out of the gate. Like that would be a good idea. Like if you've got a 42-inch waist as a male, like you want to get that down for sure. So so that that that's why the, there would be a no in this case. But I would also add that if you are that person who's a higher level of body fat and you need to cut down, you can still start to gain muscle and strength along the way. Like once your nutrition is set up well with sufficient protein. Um, so yeah, the, the answer is yes and no. It's definitely not clear cut because most of us don't really know how to measure our muscle mass. Most people do it subjectively. Um, no one's going and getting a DEXA scan and, and there's no specific gold standard of an actual level. But generally, you want to have more muscle mass in the long term, but you also don't want to be excessively fat. So kind of weigh up those things as you will. Yeah, I agree. I think once you're in the quote-unquote healthy body fat ranges for a male will we'll arbitrarily like we go into it on the slide a bit more but you know we'll say 10 to 15 percent somewhere in that range is a, a good healthy range for males and we'll say that 15 17 to 24 25 percent for females like if you're within that range then yeah cool just focus on building muscle but if you're way above those ranges then yeah, spending a little time dieting, cutting down before you try gaining muscle would probably be a bit good idea. Again, like losing body fat generally, to an extent, obviously not once you start getting into the lower end of things, uh, generally correlates with better health. So I would bias health over aesthetics, but again, that's just me. Maybe you only care about the aesthetic side of things and you want to bias that more than yeah, if you want to look like your fitness idol, you're probably going to have to spend more time building muscle. But again, you have to weigh that with the fact that you're probably less effective at building muscle when you are more overweight with body fat, like, you know? So yes and no, like Gary said, like it, it just depends. For most people, I would say get into that healthy body fat range and then try to build muscle while you stay in that body fat range until you're happy with, roughly where you're at and then you know maybe periodically you do a few diets lose a little bit of body fat gain it again lose it gain it again until you're like yeah cool i actually weigh 140 kilos shredded <laughs> yeah and i think as well like any any time the, the body fat percentage discussion like you just said there kind of comes up people get really annoyed because they're like oh what do you mean i'm not healthy if i'm 10 to 15 percent body fat it's like no no no. like that's not what Addy's saying is like if you are 18 percent body fat you could be super healthy you know it just it, it would depend on you know how active you are your other lifestyle factors it would depend on like do you store more body fat around like centrally around your abdomen that's generally worse for health than than storing it elsewhere um and it's also the case that we're talking here about someone who's going to gain weight. Like if you, if you let's say are 19, 20% body fat and you also like have a 
36 inch waist as the male and you're kind of moving towards the point where there might be certain cardiometabolic like risk factors there as a result of your, your level of fatness then we're not going to say oh yeah just go ahead and go and gain weight like so it, it might just be the case that you might be in a good place but you don't just want to keep trying to gain weight just just for the sake of it so so that's yeah like they are somewhat, they are somewhat arbitrary standards like obviously they are scientifically backed whatever fuck you want to call them um, but like there's a reason it's like yeah with higher body fat you have these associated things people with lower body fat tend to have these associated things and people who fall into this range of body fat generally tend to have these healthier habits so again like you said Gary lifestyle factors etc etc but yeah for in and around those ranges tend to be good for health like anyone that i've seen the blood work of anyone that i've coached generally seems to be in a good place as a male in that 10 to 15 percent as a female in that kind of 15 17 some people can get lower and still be fine generally women tend to not do as well once they get below that kind of 15 percent and again that's on like a, a dexa scan so take that for what you will um and then again, once they get over that kind of 24, 25% body fat, it's like, yeah, like you're, you can still obviously be healthy. Like that, you could be healthy at higher body fat, like way higher, like up to like 40%. It's just, yeah. you're probably not in the peak optimal health that you could be like, you're, there's, you're, you're, you're not looking at one factor that contributes to your health. Like you could, you have health gains on the table, if that makes sense. Like, yeah, and like we did, we discussed that in in the Facebook group as well about that kind of like you know some people make the argument that you can be totally metabolically healthy and be obese, and it's like yeah, you 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 can for sure, and you see that like at the at the beginning when people start to nudge into that category of obese, and they might be metabolically healthy at one point in time, but when you actually follow them longitudinally over a period of like five to ten years, what you see in the research is that people continuously start to drop into that like state of metabolic ill health and, and more risk factors over time. So, so it's, it's not a, it's not a simple question. Um, and I think you, you can go into the research and find like whatever bias you want here. But, uh, when you actually look at it over time, it's like, okay, yeah, obesity, like it's probably not sound for health. Like, I think we'd agree on that, <laughs> but there you go. Um, the next question was from Ali who asked, do you think PTs need a niche i.e. specific topic or area that they are specialists in or be generalists. Paddy, what do you think? We're generalists like so. <laughs> it depends on what you yeah. want to do with your business, with your whatever. Like if there's a certain clientele, the way if I was doing it, the way I would look to secure a clientele or whatever is look at who can you help the most. Not necessarily who do you want to help the most, but with your current knowledge, with your current and potential future uh, desires, like what you'd like to study, that kind of stuff, who can you help the most? That might be, I don't know, 40-year-old mothers. It might be business executives. Like wh whoever it is, who can you help the most? You can niche down into that. But generally speaking, like if you're a personal trainer, even if you're a strength coach, whatever, like being a generalist will give you more opportunity for business. So there's that. So again, it depends. Most people are going to start off as generalists in the PT industry. Um, however, most people in the PT industry leave within three to five years. So yeah, three to five, 
maybe that's a bad thing, you know? So yeah, there's no easy answer to it. Like personally, I would be just looking at who, do, who can I help the most? Like we, even though we're generalists, like we still, when clients come to us, uh, like when they apply online or whatever, it's like we still have like a questionnaire and stuff. We usually do a bit of back and forth uh, via email and it'll be like, if they are maybe injured or they have certain issues, you might be like, okay, well, Gary, you're better suited to help this person or I have other things that I'm better suited to help. So it's like that, that then generally, even though we're generalists, mm-hmm. we are still niche down. That makes sense. So, yeah. 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 And I, and I think it is, it is kind of useful to start off. Like when you're starting off, you can't just pretend to be a specialist, you know, you do see, see people do that and they're like, uh, you know, they, they've just gotten into the industry and they're like, I am, I'm a, I'm a strength coach. Like I just coach, uh, elite powerlifters. And it's like, wait, what? Like, firstly, you're not a powerlifter. And secondly, like you haven't coached any. So I think you do have to kind of try and get like generalist experience. And, and that's no different to like any other education you would get. Like if you're going to study to be like a doctor or, or any healthcare professional, you're going to work in lots of different areas, you know, within the hospital, within the community, you're going to do a little bit of cardiology, a little bit of neurology, etc. because you want to get that general knowledge base before you specify um, too much. So, so there you go. But like, I get why you're asking that, Ali, because I think if you, if you seek out like help from any of the kind of fitness business gurus or go on any fitness business courses, the first thing they tell you is to find your specific niche and to specialize as soon as possible. Um, however, like as a, as, as a trainer in your young 20s, I'm like, you've got plenty of time to do that. You know, get a generalist knowledge base first because very often what you'll find is that the people giving that advice to specialize, they were also generalists early on and they had success then when they specialized, but was that just because they had the generalist base? And I think it does play into that to some extent. Um, perfect. So the next question was, Advice for training someone terrified of injuring their back, even bodyweight squats cause pain. Um, like I, I, my knee-jerk response to this is to give a real simple answer, but I'm very mindful that I obviously have very clear biases because I've had the opportunity to work like on placement, like clinically within the hospital and, and with actual individuals and give them this advice in a setting where they actually were injured. Like, you know, so, so it's a, it's a different, it's a different story when I give this answer. But what I would say is that most of the time, um, in the majority of cases of back pain, people are totally okay to train. But the problem is that you have to have the, the education and the knowledge to be able to reassure that person. And I think sometimes people want to be able to reassure people with, without actually being like totally reassured themselves first. So step one is for you the personal trainer to feel totally comfortable yourself training when you have some back pain like are you comfortable doing that and then why like understand why like what is it about back pain that that would or wouldn't make it good to train with and if you can understand it for yourself you'll then be able to advise others because what's going to happen is you're going to say to your client oh i've been doing some reading about back pain and reached out to people who 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 know a little bit about back pain and they told me that you know it's totally okay to to train when you've got back pain you're probably going to be fine most people experience this and then what they're going to say is oh yeah but i had this mri 2 years ago and they found that i have degenerative disc disease and they also found that i've got you know bulging disc at l3 l4 and you as the trainer are going to be like oh shit because firstly, you're not totally sure of what maybe the prevalence of those things are in asymptomatic populations. And secondly, 
you're not totally sure where this lies in your scope of practice in terms of giving advice. So that's why I would kind of be, be saying to you to maybe go away, try and understand some of that stuff first. Listen to the podcast that we did um, with Mary O'Keefe, Dr. Mary O'Keefe, a couple of weeks ago. That'd be worth listening to. Um, and kind of start there and, and, and read, read further from that. I'm also putting together a resource at the moment kind of dedicated towards like personal trainers and trainees. That's basically going to be like your foundations of like, like pain and dealing with people who are, who are injured because realistically a lot of your clients as a trainer, they're going to have pain every now and then. And I think being able to reassure them is really useful. So look out for that. Over the summer. <laughs> yeah. Anything to add, Patty, on, on that, all, to coming from the perspective that obviously I'm not in the, the healthcare industry like you are, like in especially in that branch of the healthcare industry, like you are, yeah. or at least like you're qualified in, or well, I presume you passed this year, like you're pretty yes. awkward. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but yeah, coming from my perspective, all I would try to do is stay within exercises that the client feels comfortable with, that you feel comfortable with. Uh, like co- coaching like you said like you're going to be like oh oh shit well, like this bull like they they have this, the doctors have said this or I, I i don't know you know so you are going to feel like that so do stuff that you are comfortable with that you're confident with you know it, it, teach that confidence to the client and then just look to build on that over time like i have loads of clients that have experienced back pain in the past have experienced you know act like proper I mean, the same back pain is not a proper, but a proper injuries. And it's like, you just need to build confidence over time. Like, yes, obviously getting stronger is a part of that, but that doesn't mean that it has to be like, oh yeah, I know fucking Sheila, you have a back pain. You have this degenerative disc disease as shown by an MRI and bulging discs here and wherever else. But uh, yeah, just get under the squat rack. Like that's not, I don't mean that in terms of getting stronger. It's like, okay, can, can we do some leg extensions? Like let's, let's get you feeling confident, you know, actually using your, your muscular musculature system, like as a whole, like let's, let's actually just use it. Let's go. Okay. What, what can, what can you do? Sheila? Let's, let's see. Okay. You can squat body weight. Okay, cool. You can squat, you know, with a, a ball on your back, like a wall ball squash. What can you do? All I want to do is get you moving and then over time progress that in a safe, confident, controlled manner. And then essentially teach that client, that they are not fragile, that they are not weak, and that they are actually a capable human being. And like that could be as simple as picking stuff off the ground. And I don't even mean deadlifting. Like that could literally be you as a personal trainer getting a few of those like, you know, throwaway kind of cone things that they use in like uh, football training and stuff. And literally being like, right, Sheila, I know you say that you don't feel confident picking things off the ground because you feel like you're going to snap your shit. So Today, we're going to slowly start bringing these things where you pick them off of like using like boxes and stuff. You're like, right, can you pick it off that? Yes, you feel comfortable with that. Let's see your technique. Assess your technique on that. Okay, look, you're in a safe environment. You're in this. Let's, let's see if we can bring this down. And again, bring it all the way down to the floor. Oh, look at this, Sheila. You can actually pick things off the floor. You didn't get injured. Let's start bringing these that are there slightly hot, heavier. There's a one kg dumbbell. Can you pick that off the floor? Oh, look, you didn't injure yourself. That's it for today. Next week, mm-hmm. let's see if we can do two kgs. You know, and they just progress it like that. Show them that they're resilient. Show them that you, you for one, are confident in their ability, and then show them that they can be confident in their ability, and then just progress it from there. Like strength comes in many forms, and it is specific to the task. So if they're coming to you and they want to lose weight, tone up feel confident, be strong. 
you as an individual are just there to show them a path to go about achieving it. But yeah, that's my, my advice. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, and that, and that's the case for people who are in pain or aren't in pain. Like that, like that's that's the name of the game is self-efficacy. Is about showing people like what can you actually do. Like I, I remember I had a guy on one of my placements. He was like he was almost eighty. Like but one of his favorite activities was to go and play golf like with his friends. And obviously that was a the time point for him to engage socially. You know, to not be alone, to be with friends, to do meaningful tasks. As per last week's podcast, you know all that stuff really important for health. So that was his opportunity. Whereas what he had done was stopped going to play golf because he was afraid that if he tried to pick up the golf ball, he wouldn't be able to get back up. Like that, he wouldn't be able to do that anymore. So basically, what we did was was practice very similar to what you're talking about, Patty. Is like we placed like one kilo dumbbells on like a high step to start with. All right, let's see if you can pick those up. Then a lower step, and then eventually the floor. And then you know basically delivering that message that like you know if you can if you could pick up that one kilo dumbbell, do you think you could pick up a really light golf ball? Do you think you could maybe do that? And then people will tell you themselves that they are more confident in doing something then. And, and that, that, that goes for your client here. You know, if, if that person is having pain with bodyweight squats, then you just find some way that you can get them to exercise in a way that they're confident to start off with. That could literally be them getting out of the chair. It's like, all right, a full squat, that's too much. Let's see if we can, we can squat up out of a chair. How's that? Oh, that's cool. Let's add a little bit of weight. All right, then let's do a goblet squat and so on and so on and so on. So, so that's what it's all about. Um, one final question, because we've been given a good bit of detail here, they're nice, um, was what do we do personally to quote unquote optimize sleep? So we touched on this a couple of weeks ago, but, but what do we do personally? What do you do, Patty? How do you I optimize your sleep? I just close my eyes. Like I am the <laughs> worst person for <laughs> <in> this. <laughs> I, like, I'm going to tell you a story right now, right? I literally will close my eyes and within maybe 30 seconds to a minute, be in the deepest sleep you could ever imagine, right? Like Gary will tell you, I literally also just stay in the exact same position. Like I don't move while I'm asleep. Like if you powered off your computer, that's what it's like. It's like my brain just powered off. Like I don't move like nothing, right? I have some pretty fucked up dreams, but I don't move at all, right? The, like, all the time as well, when I was younger, like, my mom used to be able to, like, wake me up, but I would still be asleep. She'd be like, oh, <laughs> unplug, unplug the plug there. And I would still 100% be asleep, get out of my bed, unplug the plug, and then get back into my bed. But I'd be asleep. Like, I wouldn't remember it, everything, right? So... Personally, what I do to optimize my sleep is nothing. However, what I do try to do is not, and this is, this is a huge one, not sleep in a bed with Gary, all right? For two reasons, right? First of all, he farts. Sexual Farts all the time. Second of all, the last time I was in a bed with him, he sexually assaulted me. So there's that. Uh, and to tell you that story, it was actually when we were in Switzerland. We, my friend set us up, like hooked us up with some pretty fucking sweet digs, like a real nice uh, rooftop. What are those called? Where you got a, whatever the fuck it's called, you know, penthouse. That's that's penthouse. <laughs> penthouse apartment overlooking a lake. It was beautiful, like actually beautiful, right? And then I was like, all right, cool, Gary, we have this thing in the morning. We'll get up, we'll explore the, the city in the morning, real nice. Uh, I was like, we'll go to bed early, 
right? There was only one pretty fucking big bed. I was like, this this will be fine, you know? Um, so we're in the bed and literally must have been maybe 1 a.m., right? And Gary just takes my hand and tries to hold my hand in his sleep. Like he was fully asleep and I woke up to someone trying to hold my hand. I was like, what the fuck is this? Like he literally tried to molest me in the night. And then he was like, oh, I, I, I can't remember it was his excuse in the morning. He was like, oh, I do that because uh, I, I do that with my girlfriend. Uh, uh, yeah. It's like, okay, well, I'm not your girl. I thought it was your willy. Yeah, well, it was sick. Don't ever do it again. <laughs> but yeah, no, to actually answer the question, uh, I do nothing to optimize my sleep. And I realized that I'm in the extreme minority uh, that doesn't need, well, I say it doesn't need to do anything. Like I literally just close my eyes, fall asleep. And if I need to get up at 6 a.m., I will naturally just wake up at 5.30 a.m. Yeah, like like for me, I, I do a couple of things. Some of them are not necessarily deliberate for sleep because they're just good practices. But like firstly, exercise like just do it like move your body be active like that that generally helps sleep definitely helps for me and get out during the day if you can if you can get out into sunlight get lots of light exposure that tends to help and you've probably experienced that yourself where you know the sun will be out someday and you're 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 out all day and then you're just absolutely drained and you sleep like a baby um other than that not be on my phone in bed and that's a that's a, a pretty big one and like, I don't really do anything else actively. Like, I'm not saying that there's no benefit to doing anything else. It's just that I personally don't. I try not you, to. You also, you also don't drink water before going to bed because you also wake up and need to urinate like you're some 90-year-old man or something. Yep, that's me. Whereas, again, like I could literally drink a liter of water before going to bed and I wouldn't wake up because of it. But yeah, that, that'll, that, <laughs> that'll show you again. Like whenever anyone gives advice out in the fitness industry, it is actually something that's really hard to do because what you're trying to do is give nuanced advice to a broad audience. So like, just think about that. If the two of us, we're just normal people, you know, we're not involved in the fitness industry, say, and we're looking for advice. Like my time doing all the things, getting these blue light blocking glasses, not drinking water before bed, doing this, like don't look at your phone, don't, like all, all that kind of stuff. I would literally just be wasting my time. Like I'm sure there would be some maybe measurable potential benefit to me doing that, you know? But by and large, I wouldn't, like I wouldn't be effectively using my time and I would just be stressing over minor details for minimal return. Whereas for Gary, some of these things may be way more important, you know? So again, whenever you're interpreting information that you're given from the fitness industry as a whole, or in general, like you should ask like, who is this for? And then if you apply that information, you should be in some way tracking how that has actually improved the, the metrics that you're trying to, to help, you know? So if again, you're trying to improve your sleep, like how are you actually quantifying that improved sleep if that makes sense like it shouldn't just be like oh yeah i'm trying to uh, improve my sleep and i'm doing all these things and you've no like you're not even doing a more 
feeling-based uh, quantifying or quantification. Like you're not, you're not even doing that. You're just going, oh yeah, like I, I think these things are improving. You're not waking up and going, okay, how was my sleep? Assessing it, was it good? Was it bad? How long did I sleep? You're not even doing the the more kind of feeling-based quantification. You're just going, yeah, I hope it's working. You know. Yep. And like, you know, we touched on more of that in, in, in the podcast two weeks ago or three weeks ago, whatever it's titled over medicalization. So it's worth listening to. I think, you know, we're, we're, we're essentially making the case that, yeah, there are more specific things that you could potentially do to, to improve your sleep, but it just depends on who you are as well. Like maybe it's the case that you generally like eat a massive meal right before bed. Like that's, that's not something I would typically do anyway, but if I do that, it would affect my sleep. So I try not to do that, you know? Um, whereas Patty, I'm pretty sure you've, you've no problem like slamming just loads of carbs right before bed and it won't affect your sleep. And there you go. Um, and I'm, pretty sure I'm, pretty sure. shot. I'm pretty sure I could get shot and it wouldn't affect my sleep. I just probably would never wake up. Like That's weak, man. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, I think, I think that that covers all the, que- well, not all the questions that we have, but we don't want to make this like a three hour podcast either. And um, we basically just pick three to five questions each week. So if you had a question and it didn't get answered, then just ask it next week and we will get stuck into or, it. But other than that. Even, even better than asking it next week, there is a form below linked that you can submit questions and we will either do a full podcast on them, do an article on them, or we will answer it at the end of the podcast. So if you ask a question and we haven't answered it before, um, we will answer it. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. So do you have anything else to add to this, Gary? Nothing else to add. No, I just need to have my breakfast. Well, I did have protein bar, but other than that. So you already broke your fast, so you're not actually having breakfast. Make, makes sense. I don't even care about those semantics. I just want a big tasty meal with loads of eggs. <laughs> That's fair enough. Um, right. I have nothing else to say except that it is quite, in fact, too easy. Too easy.